Introducing the new Poloniex trading system, now with 30 times faster order matching, 10 times faster transactions, an enhanced user interface, and even more comprehensive features. Trade like a pro on Poloniex. For more information, visit poloniex.com now. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today, joining us on the other side of the mic is an early adopter of the show, my dear friend, one of my favorite founders in this space, Zach Prince, founder and CEO at BlockFi. This is very exciting. It's been way too long that we've had you uh, grace us with your presence on the show. It has been too long, Frank. I'm really happy to be here. I'm sure we have a lot to talk about. I mean, nothing's happened since the last time we talked. <laughs> An entire three years of crazy crypto markets have happened since you first joined us. And basically, BlockFi was just such a steady, you know, fast growing company that like it was almost unsexy to an extent because it was just so steadfast and so stable. And then everything the entire market on the retail side got crazy so now we have we have reason to bring you on but when you first joined the show i think the company was like 50 people when we first met i think the company was like 20 people in that the hasleon days of 2017 or 2018 and i remember i was on a bus back from nantucket and i get a dm at six in the morning it was an early bus it was like super early in the morning and it was Zach Prince. And he said, you know, we're doing this raise. We're, we're getting like a $50 million loan from this guy, Mike Novogratz. And I'm building this like crypto bank type thing. And I responded immediately because I had nothing else to do on this bus. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll write that story. That sounds super cool. And for folks who are new to the crypto market who are listening, no one was lending $50 million or there were no $50 million series a's back then this wasn't this was before x to earn and you get a hundred million dollars so it was significant and then i met you and you laid out the vision and the vision has been 
relatively the same. Everything that you can kind of get at a bank, you can get at BlockFi as like a retail customer. And then on the other side is we do all this institutional stuff to like ascertain yields and serve institutional clients. And obviously like all this stuff has happened. There was risks that were not necessarily apparent. There were counterparties that maybe we should not have trusted as much. You're the only firm that really got out of it the other end without having to, you know, you never pause withdrawals. There's other firms that are in a much worse state coming out of this crisis, like a mini 2008 financial crisis. But anyway, me putting aside my own pontificating, how's business? I mean, overall, I'm really happy with, you know, where BlockFi is today. To your point, Frank, thank you for mentioning it. I mean, we, we just went through a, um, a massive stress test and in terms of the products and services on our platform and, you know, what our clients sign up for on both the retail and institutional side when they work with us, uh, we didn't miss a beat. And the type of business model that we have is one that is a close comparable to banking. And, and the type of stress test we went through is one that I don't think a traditional bank could even come close to handling in terms of the velocity of uh, withdrawal activity on our, on our platform. And, you know, I think there are a lot of things that you learn through these stress tests, whatever kind of stress test it might be. This, this might be the biggest one we've ever been through, but we've been through smaller things before, you know, COVID hitting the crypto markets or just the normal volatility that you go through in, in crypto markets. But the team has done a phenomenal job. We're really excited about the partnership that we have with FTX, and, and hopefully we can talk more about that later on in the show. And we're going to keep going. I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities that emerge from you know the events of the last few months for a company like BlockFi. There's a lot of things we've been working on for a long time on the regulatory front that are still you know progressing and, and on the product development side of things that are still progressing. So business overall is, is good. You, you would obviously prefer to not have <laughs> some of the events over the last uh, over the last couple months, but you know, all things considered, I think the outlook for BlockFi is very bright. I think that it'll take folks some time, but you know, fo folks who follow the industry very closely are already able to discern that there's a massive difference between BlockFi and, and some of the other platforms, and that was maybe harder to discern before the events of the last couple months. I think it's a lot easier for folks who are paying attention to discern that now. And I think if we fast forward a year or two or three, it'll be even easier for folks to say, okay, you know, BlockFi and maybe a couple others were doing things a certain way that enabled them to withstand these periods of volatility or market stress. They come out the other side stronger and with less competition. Other folks weren't able to do that. And so there's a healthy maturation and, and we want to be as much a part of building things for the industry and the ecosystem on a go forward basis with all the learnings that we now have as we were prior to all of the crazy events that have taken place over the last few months. So overall, we're doing great, man. Still building, still focused, still bullish. <laughs> you're buying more Bitcoin than anyone these days. I see all the time you're, you're, you're hitting that buy button. There's a friend of mine at the firm who, who has asked me not to put the firms in the same sentence as some of these other competitors for good reason, I think, because frankly, those competitors have always made me very angry or are making me angry now. 
when you're talking about unbanking people when you're literally a bank or when you're lying about FDIC insurance when you don't really have it, I mean, these things are egregious to an extent. And I don't see anything, at least at a surface level from a distance, about the way BlockFi has managed their business that stands out as as egregious in that way. But I will ask, you know, do you think there was anything you could have done differently to mitigate this and to maybe, you know, come out a bit stronger than you did? Frankly, you did not lend as much to these guys who we'll talk about these guys in a second as some other counterparties. But do you think that there was some sort of way you could have mitigated this contagion in, in a way that you maybe were not able to? I think we absolutely learned things around, you know, collateralization, haircuts, and and the time it can take to liquidate certain assets in an orderly way. Uh, I think we learned a lot of things that we're in the process of implementing around, you know, term structure for both the deposit and borrowing side of of our platform that we'll implement through the products going forward. And I think that there are some really clear opportunities that you know BlockFi and and others who are, uh, you know, still standing can implement for the industry writ large to make everything, you know, safer, more efficient, and just build a, a healthier, more robust ecosystem. So I think we learned a lot. I've thought about, should we have done something differently to your point around some of the marketing that other platforms have done, which which I would agree with your categorization of it being a bit egregious. And we've always kind of had a strategy of, we don't want our marketing to be negative towards other platforms in the industry. We don't think that's the right marketing strategy to have. We want to be supporters of the industry. And so we always kind of, you know, even if, even if folks were saying negative things about us, we just don't, don't engage in that type of activity. But I've definitely questioned whether that was the right decision, you know, over the last few weeks and months, because we, we did know, you know, folks like you suspected, we had a pretty clear understanding, maybe better than most, that that there were probably things, you know, going on at other places that weren't healthy. And we kind of held back from saying anything about it. And, and we're debating right now whether we should, you know, change that tact on a go forward basis or not. But it's just so, yeah. it's so sad, you know, like it's so sad reading, yeah. reading some of the details from people affected by by the bankruptcies of Celsius and Voyager. And it's uh, it's not good for the space overall. So, so yeah. we are thinking a bit about whether we should change that marketing strategy or just try and be more helpful, specifically talking about not only our risk management practices, but but how we would encourage consumers to evaluate other platforms, that type of thing. Yeah. And even saying like, when the music's playing, you have to dance. And it was nice to see the juicy yields and I mean, that is better than what you can get on Wall Street. When you go to a traditional bank, you're getting nothing on your money. But I think one thing that we didn't do as an industry, myself included to an extent, and the firms providing these services, we looked at that and thought it was riskless. But at the end of the day, what yields are is risk. The higher the yield inherently the more risk there is. And I don't think we as an industry understood that, frankly, or at least addressed it. When you get 10% yield versus five, 
it inherently means that your money is at a higher risk of disappearing. Absolutely. And look, you know, we've tried to be clear about the fact that there is risk here. And it's a question of whether you're being appropriately compensated for the risk that you're taking and whether you understand enough about that risk to make a decision around whether it, you know, makes sense for a portion of your investment portfolio. One thing that I said prior to the events of May, June, on a different podcast was I got asked the question, it was like a listener question, and it was like, should I put money that I am saving, that I'm using to save for a down payment on a house for my family into the BlockFi interest account? And and the response Mm. I gave to that question was something to the effect of, look, if you're saving money for a house for your family for a down payment, I don't know that a BlockFi interest account is the right place for you. If you're saving money mm. for a down payment on a boat, sure. <laughs> like, you know, so so there, there, I think there's a distinction there, right? Like these aren't municipal bonds. This isn't a savings account with FDIC insurance or a brokerage account with yes. SIPC insurance. There is a different yes. amount of risk here. Now, for a portion of my portfolio, you know, probably a larger portion than, than what, you know, the average investor should do. But for a portion of my portfolio, the risk return profile of the BlockFi interest account is great for both cash yeah. and Bitcoin. But, you know, I'm fortunate to be relatively financially successful and I, and I have a high risk appetite and I do it with a appropriate portion of my portfolio. And so, yeah, folks have to be conscious of this stuff. I mean, putting your emergency fund into uh, a DeFi protocol or a crypto interest account is never something I would recommend people to do. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Zach Prince. Never go full DGEN. Never go full DGEN. Well, it's all in context. I mean, look, if you're, if you're, if you're 23 years old and you know, you're, you're starting to invest for the first time and you want to just be super risk on and try and hit a home run, I mean, sure, go for it. But you know, if you're <laughs> Knock yourself out. Build, building a family or close to retirement, I mean, there's, you know, there's a spectrum here. Yeah. So in hindsight, maybe we all should have addressed that, been more clear about that. I want to give you some credit for something. Don't want to talk you up too much, but you had some serious cojones when you got into that Twitter spaces with Selkis and had no idea that it was visible. And you still took the questions. Me and Davis, we were listening in because we were threading the, the whole discussion or taking notes on the whole discussion for a thread. And I've been in that spot and I was like, holy crap. Like, This guy has no idea that he's visible. He's being invited on stage. This was like in the middle of the crisis of everything melting down. And you're like, all right, like, are my lawyers going to yell at me tomorrow? Like, you know what, what's going to happen? And you handled it. What was that like to kind of like in the middle of this crisis? Yeah. Yeah. Look, you you know, from the first time I was on, I mean, the whole reason I started BlockFi in the first place is because I had been such a big, you know, personal believer in the cryptocurrency space. And at a certain point, I just decided that I had to get involved full time. You know, I I was probably a fan of yours and following you on Twitter before you knew who I was. So we liquidated three arrows. We started their liquidation on a Saturday. Celsius blew up on a Sunday. It was that forthcoming week. And it was, I don't remember what night, Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. It was pretty late, 9.30 or 10 or 10.30 or something. And I was logging off of work and laying down to bed and I was going to read Twitter for five minutes before I fell asleep. And I clicked on this 
link at the top that said three arrows collapse and there's a thousand people listening in and i thought i could just pop in as a yeah as a listener as, as a common observer or whatever you know like without without being noticed and as soon as i logged <laughs> into this thing ryan was like zach prince is here <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like well because so then it's like okay do i just leave i can't just no. leave that would be no. sketchy as hell i can't just leave <laughs> <laughs> so so then it's like okay you know my fate was kind of sealed but like honestly i mean i've been eager to talk <laughs> about this stuff but it, but it took me yeah. a minute to be in a position where i could talk about it frankly yeah. because we were just so busy i mean we were literally like there was a period of about two weeks there where i was you know waking up between three and six a.m and and working until 10 p.m to 1 a.m i mean like yeah. you know running the company and making the decisions that needed to be made. And, you know, there were all kinds of things that happened where, I mean, there were banking partners, you know, banking partners of ours who we used to process payments that were struggling to keep up with the volumes that BlockFi customers were running. So th there was just a lot of, you know, we were work working more than we ever, than we ever have in our lives. And so I, I intended for that to be like a five minute read crypto Twitter while I'm falling asleep. And it ended up being a uh, impromptu, you know, first interview in the middle of the crisis. But but thank you for saying that. I mean, look, I'm, I'm still a fan of all this stuff. Like I'm a fan of Ryan Selkis. I'm a fan of the block. And so I was happy that I was uh, able to do it. Yeah, I just know that like our job is very tough because we try not to be too emotional. We have to kind of like look at things and report on them. This is what's happening. And it's very easy to kind of dehumanize that because you're moving so quickly and all these things are happening, but each like moment or each event involves like specific people and their lives and it's complicated and it's thorny. And I just love thinking about, you know, stepping back and thinking about moments like that because we've all been there. We've all been in a situation like that where it's like, oh crap. Everyone can see me. I have to, I have to step up. I have to make this decision. Anyway, in the wake of the market downturn and all of these associated disruptions, right? What I'm hearing is a lot of lenders have peeled back their aggressiveness and capital has kind of been pulled out of the system. When you think about the way business was done before, do you think you and your competitors were maybe too aggressive and was that a result of, you know, like a race to the bottom type situation where if I don't give this loan out, they're just going to go to Genesis or they're just going to go to whoever? There were definitely elements of that, you know, so I'll talk about the industry writ large and then how I think about it with BlockFi. You know, so in the early days, like 2018, 2019, when we were, you know, first starting to become a bit of a player, it was basically us and Genesis. And then, you know, as both of our businesses grew quite substantially, more folks entered the fray for this institutional crypto lending. You know, I come from the lending part of fintech for about half a decade before, you know, starting BlockFi. And there's all kinds of, you know, sayings from traditional credit markets where it's like you have to be really careful when there's a new market and it gets competitive and you can get into these, you know, races to the bottom in terms of what types of borrowers you're improving or they're like, you got to stay away from Kyle Davies, <laughs> you know, like what, what your credit standards are. And, and ultimately the, you know, 
that always comes home to roost. And so there's a, there's a delicate balance. And I think clearly there were some folks that, that weren't even anywhere near an appropriate balance between growing a business, which is lending driven and managing risk appropriately so that you can weather defaults or, or other forms of credit shocks. And I think in, in BlockFi's case, like there's some things I'm really happy about, other things that, that we've learned from. You know, that one thing that I'm really happy about is, you know, with Three Arrows Capital, we had them classified in a way in our, you know, institutional credit underwriting framework where we wouldn't lend to them unsecured. Mm. They didn't meet the threshold of qualifying for borrowing without posting collateral from BlockFi. Now, we still ended up with a loss and, you know, we're, we're part of like the bankruptcy claims that are ongoing and everything because we have that loss, but the loss that was more because of um, the slippage on liquidating that collateral than it being unsecured, right? The slippage on liquidating collateral and the amount of time that it took for us to take possession of the collateral. Of the collateral. Got it. Yeah. And it was for specifically the, the GBTC portion of the collateral. You know, the, the Bitcoin part of it was easy, but what happens in securities land when you have an account control agreement and you're repossessing collateral as a lender because the borrower defaulted is, you know, understandably, everybody gets really scared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the transfer agent, <laughs> the custodians, everyone's like, oh my God, there's a default here. We have to be really careful that everything's done the right way. And so, you know, we lost five or six business days just trying to, you know, exercise our rights for this collateral that in hindsight, we, we had not properly, you know, forecasted for in our risk modeling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was one thing. And then, and then the other thing is, I think, um, you know, we're, we're basically experiencing losses or potential losses in, in two places. One was three arrows and the other is our mining portfolio. You know, we, we have a mining portfolio it's not huge, you know, like less than 10% of our overall lending activities. We are active in that market. And obviously, Bitcoin miners are, are having a hard time right now. All the variables yeah. are kind of going against them. Power prices are up, hash rates up, Bitcoin prices down. So I think there are some things we've learned uh, in, in both cases, you know, we'll implement more stringent practices for going forward. And it'll ultimately, you know, make us stronger in terms of our risk management. But uh, yeah, I think... The state of the market today is very different than it was three months ago. Three months ago, the normal thing for folks to do with a strong counterparty was just lend unsecured. And sometimes at shocking dollar amounts, like even can I, for can I get a loan today on my block equity <laughs> as collateral? Uh, we've never made a loan against privately held equity. We, we generally only accept uh, liquid collateral types when we are taking collateral sad but you know even rewinding three months before ust luna and 3ac and celsius and voyager blowing up we had limits for our highest credit quality counterparties you know the top ma market making firms in the world that we work with we wouldn't take an exposure to them that was greater than what we could absorb if one of them were to blow up even though that's a, a very unlikely event. So we had cap on net exposure for even our best counterparties that were a function of the equity and liquidity that, that we have on our platform. And so I think a lot more people will have things like that in place going forward for the folks that are still 
active in this market. And I think there's been a big lesson learned. Who? Who are the <laughs> who are the other lenders is the one question that I've been asking myself. But um, okay, Zach, Kyle and Sue are in the room right now. What do you say to them? What do you ask them? Not much. I mean, this is a family show, by the way. Not so. much. I mean, look, there's an ongoing, you know, numerous ongoing court cases there. So, you know, I, I would probably just probably check on their personal and mental health. Do you think that you probably can't talk about this, but I mean, in hindsight, do you believe that they misrepresented themselves to, to BlockFi in any respect? I think that information has come out, which makes it clear that they were misrepresenting things about, you know, how many assets they had and what the debt to equity ratio was of their funds, whether that's in a fund vehicle or just under three AC and, I've been somewhat disappointed slash concerned with, you know, the limited amount of commentary that they have put out there, whether it's that Bloomberg article or tweets. It feels to me like there might still be like a lack of acknowledgement of the situation and, and a lack of, you know, accepting the reality of the, of the situation and the responsibility that they have to deal with the situation. So, but yeah, I mean, to your point earlier, like I also respect that these are still people and I hope that they're doing okay. There's a whole mountain of legal and potentially, you know, civil and criminal things that they'll be dealing with in the foreseeable future. Yeah. But at least they have their yacht. That, that'll help. I, I can't, I can't that, imagine that, 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 that <laughs> they'll be enjoying the yacht. <laughs> that, would, that, would, that, that would be shocking. Introducing the new Poloniex trading system with 30 times faster order matching, 10 times faster transactions, an enhanced user interface, and even more comprehensive features. Trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and over 30 other perpetual swap contracts with up to 100x leverage on Poloniex futures and earn staking rewards on a variety of tokens. Trade like a pro on Poloniex. For more information, visit poloniex.com now. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe white and woodland green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. So what was the war room like when you liquidated them? Was it cinematic or, or more dramatic? So once things quieted down, I definitely watched the movie uh, Margin Call 
for the second or third time. <laughs> <laughs> we bring that movie up on the show. Like we brought it up like almost every I mean, show look, it's never month. as cool as what it looks like in the movies, but you know, there's definitely clips of that, that you could switch some words out for, you know, crypto words <laughs> like, <laughs> and like the plots relatively close. But, you know, in the, in the case of like the war room for the liquidation, that war room is something that we have a lot. I mean, it's it's just the risk and institutional client coverage and, and executives of the company, you know, and, and that war room comes together anytime there's significant volatility in the market. And we we flip from working, you know, Monday to Friday with a normal schedule to, to effectively working 24-7 based on what's happening in the market. And so we started the three arrows liquidation, you know, over the weekend. And mm-hmm. it was relatively orderly from our perspective. I think we were, you know, either either first or second to, you know, start liquidating. And at the time, we were we were a little bit concerned because of, uh, you know, 3AC's importance to the industry. And I, I don't think we had an appreciation for the entirety of the details that have come out, you know, at that point in time. But very clear in hindsight that we made the right decisions there. But But they weren't hard decisions. We were just doing what we always do. You know, when, when we've got yeah. a collateralized position, there's a margin call and liquidation framework and we stick to that framework. It's it's relatively black and white. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this deal because this is something that I think is confusing to people, but we did some reporting on it. The way I understood it, FTX was relatively keen to just go out and, and acquire you. That Now, I guess at some point, during negotiations, you came up with this new scheme to use the word scheme in the British sense, not in the American sense of, of illicit something going on. So it's good. I'm glad that BlockFi is not worth $25 million because that'd be bad for all of us. But what does it mean exactly? So they valued you at this price. And if, if certain things happen, they have the option to fully acquire you at 250 or something like that at some point in the future. Is that effectively the the scheme? I would say there's three kind of core components that I would highlight. So one is a $400 million credit facility. 400, yeah. I think That's it was right, initially 400. reported as, as 250, but it was, it was a $400 million credit facility. The second part is that FTX has the option to acquire BlockFi at a price of up to 240 million. At the earliest at the end of next summer. So I think it's like they mm-hmm. they could exercise the option next July and then we would fully close like in October. Mm-hmm. Additionally, BlockFi has the ability to buy back FTX's option to acquire BlockFi. You know, part of what we were navigating here is in terms of how this structure emerged, you know, we've known FTX and done business with with different parts of uh, FTX for quite a while have been, you know, really impressed at, at every interaction we've had with them across the board and, and are really mm-hmm. bullish on, you know, where the FTX platform is headed and see lots of interesting synergies between BlockFi and FTX that could, that could be complementary to both of us, regardless of what happens with, you know, the acquisition or buying back their option. But the constraint we were dealing with is we wanted to bring capital into BlockFi quickly. And yeah. The reason we wanted to do that is it was hard to forecast a scenario, you know, six or 12 months down the road where bringing more capital into the business 
wasn't going to be needed. We, we wanted to have a big capital infusion so that we could very confidently navigate whatever comes next in the markets. And, you know, a full acquisition of BlockFi is just a really big thing. You know, we have a pretty big regulatory footprint. We have a lot of products and services. We have a big team. It's not something that uh, just operationally you can get done in a week or a month. It, it, it takes time and it takes a lot of thought to, to do it right. And so we kind of cleverly punted on that, but we put some some guardrails in there in terms of how it would either happen or or not happen. And and we um, got the support of our of our shareholder base to to get the transaction done. So you know, I think what you'll see over the coming months is announcements from BlockFi and FTX together on on things that we're putting out into the market in a partnership to you know improve the credit infrastructure of the ecosystem to launch exciting retail products that maybe neither one of us would have done in, in a silo. And um, sometime next summer, we'll know if uh, we'll know if it's going to be a full, a full acquisition or if it's going to be something else. So in what scenario is the acquisition more likely? Like if Bitcoin goes back to 60, would that mean that it's less likely that BlockFi will be part of FTX? Or would the acquisition more likely happen in a Bitcoin 15K scenario? I honestly think it's uh, less sensitive to the Bitcoin price and, and more sensitive to regulatory and kind of product roadmaps and strategizing together on, on how, how we could realize synergies between the two firms and whether that's most effectively done together or at arm's length. I think those are the biggest inputs mm. to the decision making, less the Bitcoin price. Got and it. Some of these things are complex, you know? It's very complex. And we've heard a lot of criticisms on the decision to sell and how that might misalign certain incentives between major investors, major shareholders. And there's been, there was all this drama. How would you sort of mollify those concerns if those types of parties are listening and feeling a bit? been out of shape about the situation well i think i think there's two things so you know one is you have to think about the performance of BlockFi equity in the context of what's happened in the broader markets you know from the time we did our last round last summer to when we did this ftx deal phenomenal companies um like like coinbase or a firm or or others in the crypto or fintech category that are publicly traded are down 70, 80, 90%. Yeah. It finally caught up, right? Basically, the private market finally caught up with the public market. To think that private markets are immune to this, I mean, at a certain point, you're just kind of, you know, closing your eyes and ignoring the reality of the current state of the yeah. markets. So that's one. And the, and the second one is, I think we had a very aligned ethos between BlockFi and FTX in terms of the importance of prioritizing clients. Mm -hmm. So your three key stakeholders are clients, shareholders, and the team, mm -hmm. the employees. And I think you're seeing now, and I'd be happy to talk about it if we have time, but like, you know, you're seeing FTX do things like the Voyager bankruptcy proposal to enable customers to give their claim to FTX, get 75 cents on the dollar now, which is roughly the math of what's in the Voyager estate and, you know, have access to their funds on FTX immediately. And then Voyager shockingly is like, this is offensive. 
we can't do this. It doesn't preserve enough value for us. And when they're saying us, they're not talking about the clients. Like they're talking about the shareholders of the team or some mix of that. And so, you know, I do think I have a very fundamental belief that in the type of business that BlockFi is, you can't screw over your clients and still have a business, period. That's not an option. And that's not something that that BlockFi is ever going to do on my watch. That's just not going to happen. And so I think we had a deep alignment with FTX on that objective. Well, I mean, it's deeply connected to, in a sense, it's selfish, right? Because if you protect the clients, then you still have a business. Whereas with Voyager, what happens next? Like who's going to ever park money there ever again, ever again? You can't. I mean, look, and there's, there were ideas presented to us when we were, you know, debating different options and stuff of like, Hey, you can, you can totally like go through bankruptcy and restructure and there's going to be value there. Like, don't worry about it. And it's like, this isn't an, this, this isn't an airline. No. You know, like, no. like it's not an airline where people go, oh yeah, like it changed its name from Spirit to Northwest no. or whatever the heck. And like, I'll still get on the plane if it's like the most convenient <laughs> and like best flight for me or whatever. Like, this is not that. This is like, this is people's money. This is consumers money. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that, you know, fortunately, you know, we, we took the whole thing to shareholder vote. 90% of our shareholders, you know, a- approved the, the transaction. But you do see, you know, you do see little areas in, in times like this where there there isn't necessarily always incentive alignment between, you know, those three constituencies. But in BlockFi's case, and in the case of me being the CEO at BlockFi, if there's a decision to be made on that front, like we, we will prioritize clients first, period. And yes, that is self-serving in terms of the long-term health of the business, but it's also just the right thing to do. Yeah, the airline analogy is spot on. Anyway, I'm so glad that we got to do this. And Davis did a great job kind of lining you lining you up. He had this tweet that was just like, that really helped the account grow about pray to earn, I think it was. Or, yeah, yeah, pray to earn. <laughs> We're doing a lot of praying. One output of this, I mean, I don't know if it aligns with pray to earn, but you know, one positive that I, I don't know that people are really ready for it yet, but one positive thing that's come out of this is we've increased rates for stable coins and Bitcoin, you know, each of the last two months. And the reason we're able to do that is there's a lot less lenders in the market. There's still a lot of demand from institutions to borrow. And so we're able to charge higher prices. And obviously we've made some adjustments on, on risk management. I don't think people are quite ready for it yet. You know, we used to, I think in bear markets, people get angry no matter what. And it's like, we could reduce interest rates or raise interest rates and people might certain pockets of Twitter might be like, this is ridiculous, but we caught a lot of heat in 2021 and in the first half of uh, 2022 for having been on a pretty steady downward kind of rage trajectory. But now that's the the tide has kind of turned there a little bit. We'll see how long it's sustained, but interest rates are going back up. And I think, you know, I think DeFi markets are going to learn things from this. I think CFI markets have clearly learned things from this. And I don't think the punchline here is going to be that the concept of earning yield, you know, the concept of having a, a kind of parallel crypto yield market that's different than the traditional, you know, banking and central bank yield market needs to go away or isn't valuable. 
I think there's still a ton of value there for market participants and consumers, but people are rightfully going to need some time to re-educate themselves <laughs> on what some of these things mean and what things they should consider using or not using. Yeah. And I think everyone's kind of reconfiguring their risk tolerance, their counterparty risk practices, reevaluating effectively everything about the way they operate in this space. Do you think retail facing crypto lenders are going to emerge out of this like as being any different from Wall Street? I mean, this was sort of the the drum that we beaded for so long and I feel like they're not that different. Well, in in some fundamental ways they are they're very different. They're very different in terms of who can access it. You know, retail crypto lenders are a lot more global. They're very different in terms of offering a you know, another option for yield generation, whether that option is appropriate for everyone. Well, it's definitely not appropriate for everyone, but like maybe people have different views on whether it's valuable or not valuable to have more yield options, but I certainly think it's valuable. And I think that um, there's a lot of legacy costs and kind of legacy issues that the traditional banking sector bears that don't necessarily have to be borne by the new retail crypto lending or, or crypto banking sector. You could realize efficiencies, you could have it be more open globally, you could have things operate faster. <laughs> like it doesn't have to just be Monday, Friday, nine to five. It could be more of a 24 seven market. And I think there's a lot of, you know, really good things that could come out of it. But I think what we've now seen is the danger of folks not being aware of the lessons that have been learned by the traditional finance industry while they're building this new one. Mm -hmm. And if you're not cognizant of those things, uh, it, it can lead to, you know, some really troubling situations, but you know, in, in BlockFi's case, we're very fortunate to have the risk managers and other folks on our team who who have these backgrounds. Yeah. And like it feels really scary right now, but I mean, we just lived through this massive stress test that a traditional bank couldn't have lived through. And we're only going to get stronger from here on out. So wh why can't this new sector be more resilient than the old one? In addition to being more global you know, kind of better, faster, cheaper in terms of the value it delivers to consumers. So time will tell, but I'm, uh, time will tell indeed. I I'm still very, very optimistic. You're bullish sector. still. Look, the core, the core fundamentals, you know, still exists. Like, um, having alternatives for, you know, earning yield, being able to access attractive yields from providing financing to this high growth crypto industry and, you know, financial services on Bitcoin and or dollars that are globally available, I think is a total game changer. That's not something yeah. that exists, you know, JP Morgan's not giving someone in Argentina, the average retail consumer in Argentina, a bank account and, and with BlockFi, they're welcome to sign up. Yeah. So what do you think the general public right now is getting wrong or doesn't understand about the entire situation right now? Like that we may have not covered yet. I think some of this stuff is just, it just takes time. <laughs> like, 
you know, you, you and I, and, and the folks we work with day to day, we're all in the weeds. Yeah. The average consumer, you know, like how much was the average consumer discerning the difference between Lehman and Goldman Sachs in 2008? Probably not much. <laughs> it was just like yeah. all bad. It's all bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, now a lot of average consumers are signing up for Marcus from Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And they're not putting Goldman Sachs and Lehman in the same sentence. So I think some of it is just time continuing to operate, building more of an operating history. We're certainly going to be putting out even more content around risk management than we have in the past for the folks who are inclined to go really deep on that topic and, and understand things. But I think a lot of it is a lot of it is just time. I also think that regulatory structures can be helpful. You know, we've always been, I and BlockFi, we've always kind of been in the, you know, proper regulation can help facilitate adoption camp. We're obviously working on something uh, that we've talked very publicly about. And there was a very public settlement about with, uh, with the SEC in the States around the registration of our interest account product. So we're, we're still working on that. And, and I think that it could be something that's valuable for consumers, valuable for the crypto industry, and maybe even valuable for the fintech industry writ large, you know, creating new structures for folks to access these types of products in a clearly and cleanly regulated way. So yeah, time will tell. It's not, it's not going to get boring, Frank. It hasn't been it's boring. Not gonna and it's not going to get boring in the future. We have more work to do and we want to make sure you get to your your 1230 meeting. So I want to thank you so much for joining the show today, for stopping by and chatting with us on The Scoop. We've been joined again by our guest, Zach Prince, founder and CEO of BlockFi. Where can our listeners learn more and, and where can they follow you on Twitter? Not, they probably already do, but if they don't. My handle is really easy. It's BlockFi Zach, Z-A-C. My DMs are open and always have been. So, you know, feel free to ping me. Uh, and, and BlockFi, you know, the website is just BlockFi.com. So, Frank, it's always a pleasure. I'm a huge fan always. of the work you and the team at, at the Block are doing. And if you're not following uh, Frank's intern, uh, which, <laughs> which is who actually you're not living, you're not living life, which is who actually facilitated this whole this whole podcast episode that we're recording. So we should give a plug for Frank's intern. Did he pay you to say all of this? No, I'm just I'm just going off the cuff. So it's at fintech intern at fintech intern if you're not following it you should fantastic absolutely zach thanks so much for being on the show thanks for having me ladies and gentlemen we'll be back with you again with another great guest have an awesome day